Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show, Monday through Friday, on the Athletic Podcast Network. Coach Thompson? Uh huh. Coach, Coach Thompson? Was saving my life? Uh huh. For giving me uh, the opportunity, um, I was recruited by every school in the country for football and basketball. And uh, an incident happened in high school, and all that was taken away. No other teams, no other schools were recruiting me anymore. My mom went to Georgetown and begged him to give me a chance. And he did. Mm. And that's uh, and that's crazy to think that you're the best football player in the world, which I did, and to be and to be sitting up here as a Hall of Famer in basketball. You tell me, God ain't good. Oh, you flew? New York City. Did you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in New York for a wedding of all things okay. on Friday. How was, yeah. how was the flight? I, uh, the flight was straight. JetBlue's doing the quote-unquote socially distanced thing. So, yeah. you know, you might have somebody in your row, but that's you won't have like, it won't be three to the row ever. Trip was good. Flight was good. Made it back okay. Okay, good, good. So I, I, take, I hope you saw game six last night. Which should oh, have, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Watch that on the plane. <laughs> it's JetBlue, right, 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 right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, yeah, um, and that brings in our guest this week. Just young brother is just chopping it up, and I'm I'm so happy that that we have him on the show um, to talk about his team, and and we're going to take a chance here that your team. Kelly Eco is going to be surviving so that this podcast doesn't isn't outdated in a couple of days. <laughs> Can I say something though about, about the JetBlue? Yeah. I think uh, to Wasser's point, it's always kind of been social distance because no one uses it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like JetBlue. Well, they can't afford it. I like JetBlue. I love JetBlue. The the user experience, the customer yeah, experience yeah, yeah. is second to none. Yeah, no, I like JetBlue, especially here in America. That's the way it used to be back in the old days, y'all. When you had um, Midwest Express was like that. It didn't have, obviously it didn't have the, the direct TV like JetBlue does, but Midwest Express, they gave you cookies. You know, it was, it was all first class seating throughout the plane, you know, and, um, you know, some of the old 
airlines that used to do it right and and had great business. It's just sad that that they're all gone, almost all of them are gone. So, um, man, Kelly, what I mean, first of all, thank you for for joining us today. I know you're busy. You still got a team in the playoffs right now. So, um, what what's the mood as we take this on Tuesday afternoon? I don't know if you had a chance to to talk to the team if they've had practice yet. Just what are they what are they talking about going into Game Seven? They're pissed. <laughs> <laughs> They're pissed as hell. Um, you have to think about it from the standpoint of they shouldn't even be in this predicament yeah. to begin with. Yeah. You know, with or without Russ, if you look at the three games that they've lost, they blew all those games away. Mm-hmm. And now you're giving a team, a scrappy team in the Thunder, giving Chris Paul all the vengeance, all the, you know, the swagger coming back in. And killing them at the end of game six. And now you're in a game seven where it's anybody's game, really. Because it's one game. <laughs> it's one, one game. game. Anything We're going to go home. Yeah. So I think after the game, they kind of talked about a remorse of playing sloppy down the stretch, lack of execution, 22 turnovers, um, rust, you know, not being 100% as we, as we thought, you know, just a lack of cohesion from top to bottom. It's, 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 it's really amazing. Not that they didn't, not that they blew, you know, didn't blow out OKC because OKC plays a deliberate style. It's hard to blow a OKC right. out, you know, unless they're really having a bad day shooting the ball. That's not what I'm saying. But what, what surprises me in this series so far through these first six games is that I thought they would definitely be able to get Steven Adams off the floor. I just thought that was going to be the first casualty for OKC was they just were not going to be able to have Steven Adams on the floor for right. very long because they just, you know, they wouldn't be able, they wouldn't be able to hide him, you know, against the, against the small lineup. And really is he's been all right. I mean, his plus minus isn't <laughs> great. It's a minus, but it's not like a minus 20, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. minus eight. Yeah. You know, you can live with that if you're okay. See, because he gives you so much other things in terms of protecting the rim. There's not any layups for for Houston, as, you, as you've as seen down the stretch of these games that OKC has won. And I'm just surprised. Why do you, th- how do you, why do you think they've not been able to take advantage of that? I think when you look at what the Rockets want to do with the teams, they kind of want you to play, you know, uncomfortable. And to your point about Steven Adams, Normally, with small ball, the Rockets want you to force yourself to take those bigs off the floor because if you don't, you can't keep up with their speed and everything. But Steven Adams has done a great job of, I guess, staying in the game. I think he played 31 minutes last night. He's, yeah, he's been able to, I think him and Dort specifically, because normally you would think that if the Rockets make Dort beat them, then at some point the Thunder have to change their strategy. But between Dort and Adams, he's been Adam. He, he's been able to, you know, get those tip the putbacks, just be a force down low and be a deterrent to what they want to do. And I think that's a credit to Billy Donovan and his staff. But it's also a bad mark on Houston side because, you know, if you look at it from a schematic standpoint, that should be easy pickings, right? But we can't forget history, guys. Um, in 2016. In the Western Conference Finals, the Warriors were supposed to theoretically be a team that could play Steven Adams off the floor as well. 
because, of course, as we know, they make people, they make big men specifically play in space all the way away from the basket where no big man wants to venture. And Steven Adams acquitted himself quite well. You know, he's dealt with a lot of injuries since then. Um, Obviously, he's four years older. Not that he was an old man back then, but, you know, wear and tear and things like that. But he he made it work, you know, Um, and he's always kind of been a gamer on that end of the floor. He's made his money on that side of the floor. So I'm not, you know, terribly surprised by his ability to adjust. But at the same time, you know, the concessions are going to be what they are, right? Like <laughs> Jeff Green is going to get to shoot at a certain yeah, point, yeah, right? right? Like right. PJ, PJ Tucker is going to get to shoot at a certain point. Like Steven Adams can't help, but you know, it's give and take here. And at certain times, they, they those shots just don't fall. So I'm not really surprised by that. I'm more surprised by the Rockets, you know, just watching them go from completely shutting this team down to just mental lapses on defense, whether it be not getting back, whether it be the laziest switches um, imaginable. Um, I'm more surprised by their inability to just grind this offense into a, into dust because I, before the series, picked the Rockets. I just felt like they had the best player in the series by far. And their defense is such that you need a one-on-one guy that's just going to be able to beat people, right? Like, you got to be able to beat the guy in front of you. We saw Chris Paul be able to do that in the fourth quarter last night. And I don't know that you can make your bones as a team or Chris Paul just slicing people up one-on-one in the fourth quarter, but he got it done last night. I just, I thought Houston was going to be able to just strangle this team's offense, but in the losses, they've had those mental lapses um, defensively. I think it's cost them dearly. Yeah, I, I I would I would say one uh, one pushback, one small pushback. Remember when the Warriors played them? though, was Golden State. They used the death lineup, but they didn't use it all the time. No, they, they did not. They Kurt always would that. have a, a Festus Azili out there or a Bogut yeah. out there for a few minutes. So, yeah. so Stephen yeah. Adams always there would be time to rest. Yeah, somebody to lean on for a couple minutes, you know, <laughs> yeah, most of the time. Whereas Houston fair, is yep. all small, you know, and I just figured over 48 minutes or over 29 minutes, let's put it that way, when, when Adams is out there, that they were really – and P.J. Had, Tucker's hit a couple corner threes, but they haven't really exploited it to, to both of your points. Like I'm just surprised – that Houston can't speed them up when he's on the floor. I just, and I, it, I, it surprises I, me. I think to your point, I think to your point about the speeding up, I think that's kind of the Chris Paul effect. Obviously he's a traditional, you know, point guard. He's going to pound the ball to the ground. But one thing he likes to do is slow the game down. Now for the Rockets to like to pick up the pace, it's been hard to adjust to that style. You know, especially getting Russ back, knowing that, you know, when all three are on the court, Russ, Eric Gordon, and James, the pace goes to 107, but you know, with Chris Paul, it's like 101. Um, so I, I think CP has been great in, in the sense that he's able to control the game, play to his tempo and, and his speed of the boat. And that's kind of what has given them, you know, the advantage. Now, six games in, there isn't anything really that either coaching side could tweak or change at this point. <laughs> right. You know, each other. you played six straight times. You know, you know them like the back of your hand. So I think game sevens are always weird because if you look at the Rockets' history in game sevens, you know, there's been one good, one bad recently, <laughs> the 27 mysteries. Um, but they're just weird, man. Like, they're just, like, there's no schematic thing you could point to and say, 
the Rockets are going to win because of this. The Thunder win because it's going to come down to who has the, the, the mental word, though. And so far through six games in, it's been all OKC. And, but I do think there is something schematically that, that we got to talk about. And, and I hate to be that guy, but <laughs> it's Russ, you know. And yeah. the bottom line with Russ is that outside of those first four games in 2016 against Golden State, where he was the most athletic player on the floor, he was pushing the pace down Golden State's throat. When they went up 3-1 against the, 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 what, what was considered the greatest team of all time. It was Westbrook that was driving that. And then there were the last three games of that season, of that series and that season for OKC, where that's kind of been the rust every single playoff since, right? It's kind of like, let him shoot himself out of games. He's not actually, you know, doing the things that he's known for, which is finishing around the rim, pushing the pace because everybody's getting him back and we're forcing him to play in half court. <clears throat> And I think schematically for the Rockets right now, the theory of the team is five out. And when Westbrook is in the game, specifically when he doesn't have the ball in his hands, that's not your team no more. It's not five out because everybody knows he's not going to make any outside shots. And I'm, you know, and, and I don't know that Dan Tony has the juice to be able to tell a West, Russell <laughs> well, Westbrook. It's, it's funny you said that, Watts, because Weber mentioned this during the game last night. I don't know if you guys heard it, that Westbrook essentially is the center. On yeah, he feels like a center yes. now. Yeah, I mean, yep. basically, he's playing a five, to your point, because he yep. can't make shots or he hasn't been making shots. But this, again, yep. gets back to, okay, but if he's the center, then he's got to score at the rim or he's got to get to the foul line, and he did not do that with yep. Adams on the floor. You know what I'm saying? Like, I keep yeah. getting back to that. Like, they're not punishing OKC with Westbrook right. at, at the offensive five. Yeah, I have a question for you, though, about that. So you've been around, you know, a plethora of head coaches. At what point do you, as Mike D'Antoni, have to think, you know, if Russ is not having the greatest game and he's on the minutes restriction, like, when do you have that talk about yanking him from the lineup, like, in the game? Like, it's a tough conversation, obviously, because of the optics and star This is where you get back. This is where you get to, and and watch jump in, man. This is where you get to, you know, when you put all your cards in, and you make this trade, and you trade to Chris Paul, who still clearly <laughs> has some tread left on the tires, because he and because he and James, you know, it's it's time yeah. for a divorce. They, were, they yeah. weren't seeing out of yeah, eye. but but how can you then bench the guy that's the centerpiece of that trade? You know what I mean? Even though we all know he's not a hundred percent, but it's the playoffs, man. Everybody everybody that suits up plays. You know, like I can't see. You going out with anybody but, you know, Westbrook and Harden firing the bullets at the end in a game seven. Like, how do you even, how do you even form your mouth around those words? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, that's it's what tough. You, yeah, you know, it's tough. That's hard. I think the hardest part about that, if you look at the last play of the game where, you know, he throws the ball out of bounds, after the game, you know, James and Mike said two different things. Yeah. Mike said that the play was ran for to get James a switch off the screen and have him attack. But James said that play was for Russ to attack. Yeah. So it's like, if you're not even on the same page now, like when are you going to be on the same page? It's, that's dangerous. Yeah. And part of the problem, guys, is that when Russ took off, 
it was when they got rid of Capella and James was out for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And he was able to just, he had the keys yeah. to this new spread offense right. for the first time ever in his career. Cause God knows Presty never gave him any shooting. <laughs> <laughs> and so for the first time ever in his career, well, other than the MVP year, I would say the MVP year he did, right? You know, in OKC. Yeah, they, I mean, they had the year, the year after KD left. They had decent, decent um, DA shooting, but he the, he's never played with this no, amount that's true. of that's, that's, space. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yep, yep, and yep, freedom. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's just never had this amount of space. And we saw this season essentially the most efficient Russell Westbrook scoring we've right, ever seen right. in his career, right? But now in the postseason, when... I think all three of us on this call would agree that James Harden is the best on-ball player they have on this team. Yes, right. And so the dilemma becomes when they're on the court together, and specifically you can only do but so much staggering when when it comes to winning time. That's right. When it comes to six, seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, both of these guys have to be out there if they're your quote-unquote two best players. And so I think that's where the dilemma comes when it's like, it would, in order for us to cook, it would make sense for James to spread out while they're doing their five-out thing so he can have the space to operate and maneuver the way he needs to, um, which is, you know, how to optimize what he has. Right. But, you know, at the same time, like, in the biggest spots, I want Harden <laughs> with the ball in his hand. Exactly. Like, it's, it's such a cast 22 because if you think about it, you know, and I've been saying this all year, people call me crazy, but I think the staggering effect, it hurts them. Mm-hmm. Because you learn so much to play on your own with mm-hmm. you know Gordon mm-hmm. and Tucker and Covington that when you have to play together at the end of the games, now it becomes a your turn, my turn thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas how how often do you think James wants to play off the ball every time? Like he can do it at, at spots in the game to free up Russ and get him going because that's his man. But when the game on the line, he needs that ball in his hand. Like yeah. regardless. Yeah. Russ has to find a way to make, make it like I've seen Dort Lay in the game, act as a screener, and and roll to the rim. Like mm-hmm. you can do other things, right, Without right. the ball in your hand, right. So yeah, it's just it's tough. Yeah, I just could. I, I was just shocked. I mean, I understand what Dan Tony was saying. It was going to be a one-two screen roll. I get it. First of all, I don't know how much time that. I don't know if you had enough time to really <laughs> do that. You know what I mean? Because yes. even on a one-two screen roll, if I trap it now, there's four seconds left, and my guy's thirty feet from the basket with a double team trying to find somebody or shoot it. You know what I mean? So. I don't even know if you really had enough time to do that. But even if that was the play, like you said, James didn't even, I mean, that was, there was no screen. There was just, you know what I mean? Like, so I literally don't know what the play was that they were trying to do there. So, um, I don't think they knew either. Yeah. So it's weird, man. It's, it's a weird dynamic. And, and here's the funny thing, fellas. This is the funny thing to me is like, this is where sports are so insane. And I, I imagine as a player or a coach, it's, it's even crazier because we're talking about Houston like they like they dead in the water and it's over and the, and the whole era. Is, and all they got to do is win one game. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're in the set and then they and then they get a matchup that I actually think they wouldn't be bad against, you know, quite as kept with the Lakers. I actually think they match up pretty good with the Lakers. So it's it's fascinating but it's all that history that's on them. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, that weighs on them and Where's especially on Harden. I don't even think – I don't think Russell gives a shit. Russell is a is the quintessential I don't give a shit player. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like he'll, he's going to do what he does and because that's how he's – you know, that's why he's going to the Hall of Fame because that's why he, he just plays that way. Um, you want to know something? Yeah. Like, 
the thing I thought was so ironic. Mm-hmm. Just picture yourself as Daryl Moore. You, like you're sitting on the, on the sidelines watching the man you traded away, yeah. Chris Paul, yeah. giving the business to Robert Covington, the guy you brought in midseason. <laughs> like Ben Dry's and you're doing it, this game. And you're doing it with the mid-range. <laughs> it's a big F you. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's, it was like if he was the, a basketball guy, he couldn't have written a better script for that. But I'm I'm happy I'm happy you brought up Chris Paul though, Kelly, because you got a chance to cover him. Oh you God. know the two years that that he was in right. um, Houston, and I feel like you guys had a pretty good relationship. Yeah. What's it like for you to watch him during this season? Because I mean, serious, excuse me, because he started off kind of shaky. Them first two two to two, <laughs> two to three games, I was like, God damn, Chris Chris Paul might be cooked this series. And slowly but surely, he's found his way into being OKC's most effective player. Um, just what's it like for you to, to watch this, man? Uh, it, it's amazing because, like you said, I, I I was around Chris for two two good years, and I think the most important part of being around Chris, if you ever get to talk to him, is the talks outside of the court. Like he helped me as a man, as a black man, just being new in this in this world, this media world, just helping me to find my footing. And you know, Chris is a quintessential professional. Anybody will tell you this, but just his ability to take control of a team and carve a team in his image is, I think, the most important thing that we've seen so far. Um, if you look at anyone on that Thunder team, the minute Chris talks, they stop whatever they're doing and listen because he has so much experience. He's been there, done that. Um, but yeah, I never thought that Chris was done. I mean, although last year he kind of had, a, he had a, he had a bad series against the Warriors until I think that was the big thing why they were going, you know, having the back and forth was because for five games against the Warriors, Chris looked terrible. And then in game six, he finally shows up. And then James is like, I mean, I've been doing this for six games. So I think that was where the whole thing reached the apex. But now seeing him this year, it, it's amazing. He's, like one of the greatest players I've ever seen in my life. He's an even a better person. And I think these kind of older players, Chris, Carmelo, you know, Dwayne before he retired, those are guys that if you have a chance to, just talk to them because they have so much experience. They'll tell you so many stories, but more importantly, that they're good men. And I think that's something that often gets lost in, you know, covering a team or covering the NBA. Well, live sports are back and our partners at Manscaped have partnered with us to make sure that your vital parts are as safe as possible when matchups happen that we all want to see. Waz, we've talked about this many times, and you are a very, very happy customer with Manscaped. All right, yeah, Manscaped is probably my favorite sponsored product of ours. Between the ease of use, the convenience, the fact that the 3.0 lawnmower, you can use it in the shower, it's water resistant, so that makes the cleanup effort effortless um, effectively uh it, it gives you a beautiful trim very easy to use you don't have to have ever have used this product before it's very self-explanatory not gonna nick yourself cut yourself because you don't want any nicks and cuts in that area and you're just gonna look great um if you've never done this before you never thought about it you never like oh i need to be groomed or whatever trust me your significant other is going to com- uh, completely appreciate the results of the Manscaped, the Lawnmower 3.0, um, it's, it's the best thing you can do for that. And, uh, yeah, you should definitely be checking that out. Well, like Waz said, the Lawnmower 3.0 is the best hygiene tool for the modern man. You also have the Shears 2.0. It's a luxury four-piece nail kit featuring tempered stainless steel tools 
including slashed tipped tweezers, rounded point scissors, fingernail clippers, and a medium grit nail file. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20, the number 20, at manscaped.com. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code THEATHLETIC20. Take your grooming game to the next level. And we'll be right back after this. Kelly, you were talking about how what you learned from Chris as a as a as a man, and I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest with you, Kelly. I thought he was. I didn't think it was done. What I said was, I don't think he's a lead dog anymore. I think he right. needs to be traded somewhere like Miami, which I kept advocating Miami. for, <laughs> where he could roll with a guy like Jimmy Butler, and they could kind of, you know, divide the labor. I am shocked that he's played as efficiently and as well as he has. Um, as the lead guy on this OKC team. And, and you know, the, the most amazing thing about that is that in the offseason, he can go anywhere he wants to go. Like, he's done it for a year with the team where they had a 0.4 chance of making the playoffs. Right, right, right. Um, so now I don't think anybody could fault Chris if he wanted to say, okay, now I want to go play with, Jimmy, or right now, I want to go play, with, play in you know, Miami. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think anyone anyone would fault him. So, um, I think this season has been great for him in terms of reshaping his image um, around the league. Uh, I think it's going to be good for him for whatever he does down the line. You know, um, I, I agree with everything you guys said. Obviously, I you know I was somebody who, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty down on the rush trade. I just thought theoretically, and that's the that's the thing about Houston. Since the rush trade, essentially, they've been the most, I guess, intellectual basketball team in the <laughs> sense that they, it's like, how are they supposed to do this? Like, how is this supposed to work? All of those things. I was pretty down on the move. I actually felt like, one, Russ's contract is longer for just as much money. Right. And I just didn't feel like the productivity was going to justify that. Um, given the circumstances of Houston, right? right? Harden being this high usage guy and all of those things. But, I mean, I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah. The injuries, even though they came back right before the bubble to bite him, he had a pretty nice season after he came back from the injuries. Um, but, yeah, I, I would love to see Chris Paul in a situation with a, you know, like a serious team. Like, I think a team like Milwaukee could absolutely use Chris Paul because they have nobody to to initiate outside of Giannis. Mm-hmm. Everything, and, and I think Giannis is actually miscast as uh, an initiator, just possession after possession, him initiating from the wing. I think he would be served, like, incredibly by having somebody who can set him up. Yeah professionally right. right like we've we've seen a lack of that just kill teams when it whether it be philly or other teams or milwaukee last night right like we saw what miami was able to do to them down the stretch they just don't have any elite initiators so i would love to see chris paul just land somewhere with a real situation you know with some actual ch- chance to win um, cause I think he's got en- enough, l- enough left to contribute to somebody in that way. Yeah. It, so- it sounds crazy, but, uh, how about the Clippers? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I got the pieces to make it work. Well, you, you, you're, not, you're not. It's not that you're wrong. You know what? Do you know what's so crazy about that? Mm. <laughs> it is something they're lacking. Um, actual playmaking, right? We, Paul George can do it in spurts. Kawhi Leonard has made so many improvements in his game in that regard from where he began in San Antonio where he was just a straight-up tunnel vision kind of guy and now he can find people. Uh, Lou Will, he has some chemistry with Montrez and pick and roll, but he's not your classic initiator. Right. Um, that's crazy. I never even thought about that, but he would actually fit that role. I mean, he would perfectly. He would fit the role, but I can't, I'd be, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Kawhi's trying to hear all that nah. yapping. I'm going to be honest nah, with you. Nah, 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 no chance. <laughs> and neither does Doc. Doc's like, no, 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 we got one head no, coach all here. Due only one. That's just how he rolls. And that, look, it, it's been, it served him well. Right. But look, this is, just, this is dropping the, the, the morning of the, the game, guys. Um, can we get a prediction out of you guys just I to mean, get I, you on the record? I'm just going to say I, I just can't see how. Let's put it this way: I'm going to make I'm going to make Lou Dort make about six threes to beat me. That's right. what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> like right. if he makes right. five and or six threes, and I'm going to shake Dort. his hand. You know what I'm saying? It's not just Lou Dort, uh, Da. It's it's Shea Gilgis Alexander. Yes. These are the biggest Correct. games yep. of his life. Yep. 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 Right. OKC is playing these young guys. Absolutely. Big. There's just no way in minutes. hell I'm letting Chris Paul beat me in the fourth no. quarter. There's basically two. Yes. Huge miss. Any one so. of those guys. Yeah. Any one of them. If they make yeah, threes, it, or they make plays. You know, it's All right, the, cool. the problem. The problem, <laughs> it, it, like Kelly said, it, like Kelly wrote, the problem throughout this whole series is Dennis Schroeder is cooking these dudes <laughs> when he's out there. You know, and they don't have no feasting. answer for him. At least they haven't shown one so far. No, and, and I think I think the most dangerous thing is. Look, I've talked to people, you know, in the team before, and the worst case scenario, if they lose this series, they're blowing this thing up to the high heavens. Well, like, that's just, what I wanted to wow. get to, Kelly. That's what I wanted to get like, to. But yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just going to blow it up because at some point, it's like, fool me once, shame on you. You know, fool me three times. Now, you really, you really, you really cook it with gas. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't. It's just, it's just stunning to me the, the similarities, and this, and, and people in here, you know how hypersensitive Rockets fans are. So anything you yeah. say is like, you hate the Rockets, and it's like, no, I don't hate the Rockets. <laughs> I've said this all along. I, I have, I, I was the first. Well, I shouldn't say I was the first. That's, that's hyperbole. I never thought there would be a problem between Westbrook and Harden because they actually do like no. each other. They're actually friends. Right. So it's different yep. than, than. Russ and KD is different than Harden and CP3. You know, all those, all those kind of forced marriages. Um, and I didn't think, and I don't think small ball is a problem where I think the problem is, as I've said, is the accidental injury. Not, not because PJ Tucker's playing center, but because PJ Tucker's playing center and giving up 50 pounds to a guy that might fall on his ankle one day, you know, yeah. in one game or elbow him in the, in the head inadvertently on a rebound. That's where I think they'll have a problem. Not, the idea of playing small, I think they can win with that. But to your point, Kelly, like I can't see you going forward for this for a whole season. No, if they don't win this year, it's not. It's not going to happen. Yeah, this is not going to happen. Like Mike is going to be gone. Well, we know Mike's right, gone. We're off, off the bat. Yeah. but you know, to me, he been had a foot out the like. Like, yeah, I just feel like this yes. whole small ball thing was just him finally getting his way. You know, mm-hmm. and him. Playing like if he's gonna go down, it's gonna go down his way. Right now, where it gets tricky is 
You got a lot of money on the books. You got Eric Gordon's contract, who has not looked great this year at all. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to deal with He's had his moments in this He's series, had his moments. Though. He's had his moments, you know, in driving kick, you know, scenarios, and, and defending. But his outside shot has been, you know, non-existent. Now you got Tuck, who wants an extension. Mm-hmm. And he wants a big one. Yeah. Um, because of everything he's done for the team. Then you got to look at people like Covington and, and, and you know, Russ, like, do those guys want to stick around for this? Like, and James, I think no one has talked about this, but James, like we've seen it in other teams where superstars have gone disgruntled and mm-hmm. Anthony Davis, you know, all, all those people. But what about James? At some point he, he's going to be here. What? 10 years now. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know if he has that much time left in them. Well, in Houston, they, I hear what if, you, if they, yeah. if, they can't, if they can't get done here. I hear like, what you're saying. I think, well, I mean, that can't, it gets back to, okay, so now, you know, if you lose, what's Daryl Morey's situation? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you know, yeah, I safe. feel like all of those dudes, the whole regime is done. Yeah, they're going to blow this Harden thing would, I think Harden might st- might have to stick around. Yeah. Although, I think if they put him on the market, they would be takers for him. Uh, but he might. be some. He, yes, there would be some. But you'd have to take so much back. Like, I had this crazy, I had this crazy Harden trade in my head that I've been thinking about. Oh, sending back. Oh, they're gonna love us in Houston when they hear this. <laughs> <laughs> which is in two years, which is send them to Phoenix for Devin Booker. Um, oh, four D book. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. I can't see. I can't. I mean, and all due this says no. This is not a criticism of James Harden. Why? I, why would Phoenix do that? Phoenix well, is a young team on the rise with true. young guys. You know. I don't know why Phoenix would do that. Like you could say, maybe it would get them a level up, and they make the playoffs, and maybe they need to make the playoffs because you never know the finances of teams. Yeah. Um, but if I'm Phoenix and I just went eight zero in the bubble, and it looks like I got all, I'm the I'm the team on the rise, and I, things are looking very promising for me. I don't know. I don't know, dude. <laughs> all right, so I, I, I have to I have to jump in here with something because this is also fascinating to me because Kelly is explaining to us that basically the team is on the line. That's yeah, um, yeah. in game seven. Everything's on right? the line. Yeah, and 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 this is and this is what I'll I'll say the proof of Daryl Morey's influence within the talking head media culture. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm not even talking about you, DA, because I know how you roll. You don't do the whole back scratch. No, 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 no. That's not let my thing. people <laughs> propagandize you. You're gonna have your own. You're gonna have your own opinions about stuff. But the team that's on the brink of death against this OKC team, I'm supposed to believe is a matchup nightmare for the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> no, not a nightmare. It's, 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 nightmare. I can't. I can't. Well, to your point, I'm going to say this about the Lakers. I think <laughs> I think part of the reason is where, you know, obviously the Lakers are you know, one of the best teams in the NBA and the Rockets, they will just almost inherently increase their game. That's what I'm saying. They play better. They, but They just play better the against Thunder, the Lakers. If you look at the Thunder from top to bottom, the Rockets don't like getting into the trenches. They don't like those nitty-gritty guys. They mm-hmm. don't like... Banging around in the paint with Steven Adams and Dort and Dennis Shorter being an irritant, you know, and Shea Gillis just being, you know, Rico Suave. They don't like, <laughs> they don't, they don't like all of that. Yeah. Whereas the Lakers, they know how they play. They know LeBron's going to get his, the keys to slowing him down, trying to. And AD is either going to give you 45 or eight. Like, right. that's like, the, I think, yeah. look, for me, I think what the Rockets do like, 
is defending one-on-one. Yeah. Right. Which is something they can very easily do against OKC. I don't think that's the case against Maybe. the Lakers. Look, I don't yeah. think they got a guy that could go just one-on-one, never bring two to the ball ever, because that's how they want to play. They don't want to have to. They want to send some little bit of help and be able to jump back out to shooters, but yeah. they don't want to send hard doubles to people. Well, yeah. And I just don't believe they could, they possess the pieces to do that against the Lakers, especially when LeBron is in the freaking mismatch <laughs> hunting mode and all of that. It's a wrap well, for these well, kids, look what, man. They can, like, <laughs> look, well, well, here's the thing. Here's why I think it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be a route. I still obviously you, you would favor the Lakers in that series, but this right. is why I just. I've seen Houston, you know, the first game, I think it was the first game, right, Kelly, that they played with the ultra small ball liner, or maybe it was the yes. second. Was that LA? It, it was it was the first game. It was the first game. And they were and I know it was the first time LA hadn't seen it. They hadn't scouted, couldn't scout it, didn't have any film. I understand that. Middle of the season, I, I get it. Um But to like Kelly to Kelly's point, like it looked to me like the Rockets were like, We gonna live with whatever A D does to us. <laughs> you know, right. we're going to live with that. Like if he if he cooks us for 35 and 17 and blocks six shots, we're going to have to live with that. But we can we feel like Covington, we don't need to send help on LeBron with Covington. Covington's going to cover him the best he can. And again, whatever LeBron does, LeBron does. And we're going to make right. a, we're going to make so many threes that they can't deal with us because we're going to play fast. And the Lakers, unlike OKC, want to play fast. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's why I don't think it is the, the colossal mismatch that it might look like on paper. Now over seven games, will the Lakers figure it out? Will AD punish them? Probably. Yes, probably. But I think this is one of those games that they can get past. Like you said, this irritant of an OKC team (laughs) is just irritating them. And every, Uh every station is irritating to them. They can play. They'll play a lot freer. They'll play with more confidence. Russ, I don't care what Russ ever says. You can't convince me. Russ didn't want to play for the Lakers, and he's always looking to bang on the Lakers. And I just think he'll be healthier. He'll be in a better frame of mind if they get through this series. I think you will see a better Westbrook in the second round. What a question for y'all. Do y'all think this? 3-3 series is different if they're fans and they're playing in the home arenas? Sure. Every series is different. Sure. Um, I, That's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I, so how different do you think it would be, DA? Like, I don't know. That's the, that's the, that's the unknown. I, I don't, don't know. know because... Because I think OKC actually has a home court advantage. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, um, I don't know that Houston's home court advantage is that pronounced. It like, comes not every team, it's, it's, not, it's not that real. It's, it you comes know what I'm spurts. saying? Like, not every team, and I hate to do this to the Clippers, I'm always making fun <laughs> of their fans, but, like, you know, there's a difference between what the Lakers put out there and what, what will happen at, say, yeah, just uh, Oklahoma City. Not the Lakers, excuse me, the Clippers. Of course, the Lakers are the counterpoint where there's, you know, like, in the same city, in literally the same building. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think OKC is actually... The, the the team that's less served by that because they actually have a home court advantage. Yeah, they do, except they had home court in game six with the best team in basketball. <laughs> 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 Couldn't close it out. That's all I'm saying with that home court. That was mean. That was mean, D.A. That was mean. Damn, D.A. <laughs> they had uh, 19,000 people cheering their hearts out. <laughs> And Clay kept rising up on him. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. 
Show. Oh my God! That's, Just a peak. That's why that would be to my to my way. That's one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. Oh, of course, because they had 100%. absolutely no reason to win that game. Zero. No, no, no none. <laughs> they were they were cooked. Zero reason to win cooked. that game. And nobody would have been mad at them if they had lost. Nah, you know what I'm saying? Like, nah, was, nah. they were just like, okay, they just ran it. Look, they just ran into a it's great team. They up. ran into Russ and KD, and that's it. And there's nothing you can do about it. And right. Clay was like, nah, I ain't done yet. And that, oh man, you know. But to your, to your larger, I don't know. I just think every everything is affected by fans, you know, for good and for bad. So there's no way of saying this would have happened if there had been fans. But I, it would have been different, certainly. Yes, in some way, it would have been different. Um, but I want, yeah, I, it's it's fascinating to to see how people are ad- adapting and not adapting to playing in this kind of sterile bubble, playing with family for the first time. You know, all of those things. It's just so weird. That's why this is all to me a one off. Like you can't take anything from this really long term, other than I agree with you. If the Rockets do go out in the first round. I just don't know how you bring well. You're not bringing Antonio back. I mean, I think he's he is gone. And then, but what do you do now if he's gone? You've. I don't think Tillman Fertitta is going to pay off Daryl Morey and then hire another GM <laughs> making five million or six million or whatever Daryl's making million per year. Yeah, he'll hire a GM that's going to make two. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He's going to do the he's going to do the Dan Gilbert model. But, do you, but does that GM is that GM going to come in and say, "Yeah, we're all wedded to, you know, 63s a game like Daryl is?" I mean, it's an oh. open job. At some point you're just going to take it. Yeah. 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 I just wonder to your point like who who, you know, if you don't if you don't win <clears throat> I mean, you just brought Covington in. He's the one guy that I would think would have some value, but right. You don't want to just you just got him. Why would you then move him? Um, it's it's going to be fascinating to see what Houston does if they don't get out this first round. Um, I don't think they. I mean, look, I've learned to never say never, but it take a big sack to trade Harden. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> take a <laughs> yeah. big, yeah, big Willie, you know, Sam Cassell style sack to trade James Harden. <laughs> um, even though he's making a lot of money, but he's just so. He's such, he so represents what you've done, your whole philosophy of basketball. You know what I mean? Like you've tied yourself to him. You've wedded yourself to him. I mean, to walk away from that. And he's not like he's done. It's not like he's 38. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, he's still really freaking. Yeah. What about that legacy though? Yeah. And, and you know what, Kelly, I never even thought about like, does he want to leave? Um, he has been there a while. It's been almost 10 years. Um, but if he goes somewhere else, would he go somewhere? Would he go anywhere? I mean, this is, you know. I don't go back to the West Coast. On that I know the Houston people are just going apoplectic about us trading James Harden. So. <laughs> Kelly, what, what did you, you know, Waz asked me, for, uh, I, he asked both of us predict, for predictions. So what do you think is going to happen in game seven? I think originally I had it Rockets in seven. I, I'm going to stand by it. Okay. I just don't see, because everything, you know, the, the Rockets did wrong. They did it to themselves. Right, it's correctable. Right. Yeah, yeah, they're not mm-hmm. like yeah. And Mike said himself, he said, you know, they shot themselves in the foot yeah. with a double barrel shotgun. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think everything is able to be fixed, but it's going to come down to, you know, the spirit and their swagger. Do they have it in them to, to make those changes? Because there will be times in Game Seven where the game gets tough. Yeah, like you will go through a cold stretch. You got to go at zero for eight, stretch from three, something like that. 
how are you going to bounce back from there? How are you going to keep up with CP and Schroeder and all those guys? So I, I, I do think they have enough to win the game, but, you know, talk is cheap. Yeah, no question. <clears throat> no question. Um, So, uh, man, this is fascinating. It's fascinating. Houston and Philly, who would have figured? You know, like the process and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Team 63s. Right. You know, like if they both go out in the first round, they're going to be some mad uh, analytics people. I'll just say that. Oh, boy. Oh, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see that world. Man, Kelly, man, thank you. I appreciate you, man. And I I love what you're doing, man. And and keep it up. Great work um, all season long. The ecosystem is tremendous. You're doing great, great stuff, man. Appreciate it, sir. And, um, Look, I hope your squad just just so that you have more to write about um, advances because I think they're a fun team to talk about and to write about. And yeah, be, uh, be around. Sure. So one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would like to see them advance just because just because of the drama. I think it would be fun the second round. So man, good luck and um, hopefully we'll have you on again real soon. Thank you, man, Kelly. Kelly, thank you, bro. Man, thank, thank you, you bro. so much. Be good. Thanks, Jake. We do have to take a break real quick to talk about one of the athletics newest podcast and we'll be right back in just a minute well i want to ask john thompson all these folks that say well john was a racist and we've talked about it in the past how do you feel you should be perceived and do you even care that you happen to be the most successful big black college well i don't give dignity to the answer george you understand what i'm saying i'm again as i've said to you before i think what we've talked about it's amazing my life by its nature, has been far more integrated socially and from a work standpoint than 90% of the people who question and challenge what I am. You know, and I find that extremely amusing that I look at these people who have no form of integration in their life in any way other than the fact that they may come in periodically and interview somebody and say this guy's their best friend because he'll give them a good story. And then they'll look at John Thompson and say that John Thompson is something. But I haven't given a lot of time to it. You know, and sitting down and thinking about it, and I certainly don't give any dignity to the foolish people who ask me those foolish questions. And the interesting part about it that I find that most of the time there are people who I find are social misfits and have very little uh, integration or very little uh, mixture in their lives at all. But they'll sit and say, "Well, I have a problem with Thompson. I'm a grouchy." Oh, guys, you know. (laughs) But I don't sit around and try to evaluate whether I'm a racist or whether I'm not a racist. I try to be fair with people. And if I feel that I'm not, I say I'm sorry. I have no problem with that. You said you're sorry to somebody? Not to you, though. Thank you. Welcome to Who Call My Feelings. I just want to be on the Athletic Podcast Network. Okay, so on Sunday, August 30th, we lost the basketball giant in John, Big John Thompson. Um, he died at the age of 78. Obviously, a, a legend in the coaching realm for somebody like me who grew up on the Northeast, East Coast, Big East fanatic. Uh, John Thompson is a god. He, he was one of the people who built that conference into what it became um, influenced so many players, of course, coaches and things of that nature. And, you know, just his presence as a prominent black man in America, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's one of those things where our celebrities are prominent people within our culture, in our lives, right? As black people in America. And John Thompson was just that 
and he was for me, you know, I, I, I sort of caught the tail end of John Thompson when I became sort of sentient as a basketball fanatic. Um, but you know, even then his legacy was that this was somebody who suffered no fools and was going to speak his mind always, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I just, I just love that about him and what he represented. Um, obviously David Georgetown is in the, the DC area. That's your stomping grounds. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, and so I know that, uh, big John is means a lot to you. Uh, and I know, so I'm sorry for your loss in that regard. Um, but definitely wanted to talk to you about, you know, big John and what, what he meant. Oh man. You know, was we could, we could, you could literally do a whole show obviously on big John. Um, I covered his teams, the, his team late in the 80s. So this, <laughs> I always tell people, you know, Georgetown had this era for about 15 years where they just had great center after great center, right? They had, mm-hmm. you know, even before Patrick, they had Craig Shelton, who was an all-American player, great, great mm-hmm. uh, big man, then Patrick, then Alonzo, then Dikembe, even Othella Harrington who played in the NBA for a long, long time. Don Reed yep. played in the NBA for many years. And I covered the one team that didn't have a great center. <laughs> I had Ben Guillory was my center. <laughs> so this goes that way sometimes. But, um, you know, but it was still so much fun covering him that one year. I was young, I was 23 years old, I think, you know. Wow. And growing up in wow. D.C., um, it was uh, – I just can't even describe what it was like to cover Georgetown. Like they were as big – as anybody, they were bigger than the bullets were. They were way bigger than the bullets wow. back then. You know, like that was a prime beat, you know. Um, and so just doing that day in and day out was just <clears throat> phenomenal. And just, you know, getting to know John even a little bit, um, he was just, he was a force of nature. You know, it was um, it was amazing just to listen to him um, kind of um, – Perry with with local reporters or, or national reporters, um, some of whom he liked. He liked a lot more media than he let on. There were people locally mm. that he liked a lot, <laughs> even some national mm-hmm. people that he liked. He just didn't like the guys that came with an obvious agenda, <clears throat> you know, which was mm. to ask him why you why you only have black players on your team. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's like, what about Chicago? You know what I mean? Like that's, that's right, the question right, doesn't have right, any meaning. Right. You don't even want to have a discussion. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. So. Um, right. Those are the ones that he got his his dander up about. But um, he was he was a fascinating guy was. Um, and it was just a, it was an education for a very young reporter to kind of learn. And I wrote about this today. Like, I just I love the phone calls I would have with John late at night. And that's when he talked to everybody was late at night because <clears throat> that's when he would watch film. He would watch film at midnight or one in the morning. Um and while he was watching film, he would call people. He would, you know, make phone calls to whoever he needed to talk to, talk to that day. Um, and so you would talk to him and sometimes it would be 15 minutes and sometimes it would be an hour. But it was great. It was just great talking to him um, and listening to him kind of talk about the world as he saw it. And, you know, in D.C., I was just talking. I did a um, a podcast with uh, Mark Thompson. And Mark was one of his ball boys at Georgetown. And Mark now hosts the show um, uh, Make It Plain on, on Sirius XM. Um, it's a great, great show if you ever get a chance to listen to it. Um, and Mark, is, <clears throat> Mark was born here. He, was, he lived on, in Tennessee for a while, but then he came back. He went to Georgetown and, and really was close to John for many years. 
and you know we were talking about the eighties in DC, and it was um, you just can't imagine how the dichotomy of the eighties in, in the district. On the one hand, as I've said many times, you had Marion Barry, <clears throat> who really helped the middle class thrive, the black middle class in Washington, D.C., of which I was a part growing up, the working class people in the city that got jobs because either their companies were given work because of Marion Barry, who forced these private companies to hire black people who were Mm. going into these companies or their children had jobs. And I was one of those kids that got a summer job through the summer jobs program. And every kid I knew had a summer job because of Marion Barry. You know what I mean? Mm. And so that just changed the whole dynamic. And then you also had at the same time, this influx of crack and other drugs that just decimated entire sections, entire wards of DC that didn't have the privilege that I had of two working families, of two working parents. You know what I mean? Right. And so you had this kind of constant back and forth in DC and into that kind of maelstrom of this schizophrenic city that was going on at the time (laughs) came this team that literally almost no black people knew <laughs> existed in terms of. So hold on, before you get into yeah. that, because I, I think it's important for people to understand this, because the, the, the meme on Twitter is going around about how people outside of D.C. thought that Georgetown was a historically black college. Right. Like like it was Howard or something because Georgetown, the brand as a basketball brand, was so explicitly black. Yeah, right. <laughs> like right. it was it was insane at a time where the powerhouse programs weren't right. right? Like obviously there were black players on IU and UNC and Duke and Kansas and Kentucky and you know all the teams that we know to be the same blue bloods right. that are still that right. now but Georgetown was just a, a step much further for you know a myriad of reasons but what is that dynamic like for you as a DC resident yeah. who knows what Georgetown actually is well it's a it's an elite institution yeah, yeah. It, it is no question <laughs> But I'll say this was like a lot of people in DC were like, wait, is that George? Is that GW? Or is that George? <laughs> when it was, you know, when it first, when John, when John first got his good teams, <sighs> this was before Patrick, when he had Bebe Duran and, and Big Sky Shelton, like I said, and those guys, the first really good Georgetown teams that made the, like the Elite Eight and they lost to Iowa, I think, in 1980 in the Elite Eight. And we were like, okay, that, Okay, yeah, Georgetown, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, the school, right, right, right. You know, so even a lot of people in D.C. took a minute were like, okay, we get it. Okay, we know where it is now. But yeah, no, there's no question. It was, it was a, you know, it was a galvanizing thing in to see in D.C. a black team in the District of Columbia with a black head coach was just because you know. All of us, we like Maryland because Maryland was good. You know, Maryland, lefty had Maryland rolling. They had almost, you know, they were a a top 20 program for a decade, you know. Mm. And he had had John Lucas and he had had, you know, Tom McMillan and he had had Steve Shepard. He had had All-Americans and Olympians, Ernie Graham, really good players come through there. So we were all Maryland fans because Maryland was a good team. And then all of a sudden here comes John and his team. And again, 
an all-black team with a black head coach is just a different visual. You know what I'm saying? It's just a different visual. And they played this physical in-your-face style. You know, they were trapping, Mm -hmm. pressing full court, and it was was just remarkable (sighs) to see. And it was so empowering, you know, like for kids in D.C. to see this style of play. And John would recruit D.C. kids. You know, he recruited – Dunbar. He recruited Spingarn. He recruited mm. Dunbar of Baltimore with Bob Wade up there, you know, so he was recruiting kids that we knew, you know, and so wow, it was just, it was a game changer, you know, in so many ways. And and like I was saying on the other, on the other podcast, you all not only had John, but then you had UDC in division two, whose coach was Will Jones, who was a legendary player in DC who became a, a head coach and and UDC is a is a black school, you know. Wow. And they in '84 they won the national championship in Division Two. So you had wow. the same year Georgetown wins the national championship in Division One, and UDC wins the national championship in Division Two. <laughs> you know, with guys who, who their two best players were Earl Jones, who wound up getting drafted by the Lakers, and their best player was a guy named Michael Bird, who everybody called Michael Britt, who everybody called P Bird, P Bird Britt. <laughs> who was this that dynamic offensive scoring, you know, slashing wing type player. And so we felt like you couldn't tell us nothing about basketball in 1984. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we That's had amazing. all of these, these forces. And then John being, you know, figuratively larger than life and speaking clearly and authoritatively about racism. And, and, <laughs> and when, when, when he was, you know, asked about being the first would turn the question back on the questioner and say, that's insulting that you would ask me that question because the question presumes that there weren't other black coaches who could have done this if they had only been given the opportunity. Right. You know what I mean? And right. Some- and, and, and I want to continue on yeah. that with that, Dave, because, you know, <laughs> and John, of course, because John is John, he, he said it explicitly, but, you know, Bomani actually put out a tweet when you know when when John passed, and he said Sports Center is and, and the radio is updating and saying that John Thompson opened the door for black coaches in college basketball. Mm-hmm. But uh, what what the hell happened to that door? Right, right. That's right. <laughs> you know, right. like there, there was a John and, and the Nolan Richardson and you know John Cheney at Temple, but it, it's it's not like it's ushered in this new era, right? right? right. I think you see contrastly how. The NFL, for instance, had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the idea that black people could play quarterback competently. Mm-hmm. And we're at the space now where it's just like, this is just what it is, right? right. Um, and But it's, you know, it's a little bit different at that position and the scarcity of productivity of at that position where you can't legitimately justify doing it. Mm-hmm. With coaching is just a way that you can manipulate perception. Like your play on the field can only be like the perception of it can only be manipulated, but so much. But when it comes to coaching um, success, the context of that can so easily be skewed. Oh, sure. And we see black coaches get let go for no reason. <clears throat> all the time, man. So I don't, I don't know what to, what to think about that. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a legacy. John's legacy was great, but you know, like all things you, it has to be, you know, maintained, preserved. It has to constantly be um, updated. You know what I mean? So um, luckily I think, you know, we, we, we have some, some great young black coaches in college basketball, but 
you know, it's always, we always have to challenge. We always have to push back on those narratives. They, those narratives aren't going anywhere. Was. It's never going exactly. to change. You know, John, <laughs> even winning a national championship, you know, him winning it. And then Nolan Richardson winning at Arkansas, you know, that didn't, that didn't end the narrative. The narrative is still there, you know, and you still have to kind of push back on that. And that's why, you know, a, a coach like Shaka Smart having success at a, at a school like VCU matters. That's a big deal, you know, because yep. mm-hmm. um, that gives other, other coaches, young coaches opportunities. So, um, but uh, where, where John's legacy is, I think, is that, you know, those smaller private universities where, you didn't see a lot of black coaches get opportunities. Black coaches would occasionally get chances at, at big state schools like Arkansas, you know, like UCLA. You know, there was some time, you know, they would get chances here and there. You know, um, uh, Lorenzo Romar got a shot at Washington and had it rolling there for a little while. You know what I mean? So, um, but in the main, those smaller, you know, those Gonzagas and schools like that, that didn't really give black people a lot of opportunities that was where John, I thought, had, had his biggest influence um, because he showed that you could go to a, a really good, a really strong academic school and you could graduate 97% of your players, almost all of whom were black. And, you know, you had black kids to auditing classes at George, black players auditing classes at, at Georgetown, you know, and so the perception that they couldn't do the work was 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 turned on its head, you know, and so that, those are the kinds of examples and lessons that I think have have equally big impact today, even though the overall numbers are still as they are with almost everything terrible when it comes to black people. So um, he was, he was something else, man. <laughs> he was something else. Was. He was, he was funny. He was obviously challenging. Um, but I, I said this the other day, you know, when John would, say, hey, I'm paying attention to what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. That meant so much to me, you know. Um, And um, it was it was uh, it was so affirming to hear him say that um, because you try to do, you know, we all want to do things that other people can be proud of, you know. And so, you know, to hear that from him was something, man. He's he's there's no going to be there's no replacing him. He's, you know, one of a kind. But uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk for a few minutes about it so um we'll be back uh, i guess we'll be back uh, next week um we'll, we'll talk playoffs again we'll talk about whatever comes up keep giving us those reviews we appreciate it um on apple Podcasts and all the other uh podcasts that uh, networks that you uh, get this on and please leave those five star reviews we appreciate it please check out theathletic.com um pretty good bang for your buck i will say so we'll see you next time